We're doing a short series called Christmas in the Psalms. It's a two-week series leading up to Christmas. Uh, we are going to be in the Bible for this series, as with everything. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to have one. The ushers are going to make their ways down the aisles or into the overflow. And just raise your hand and indicate to them if you need a Bible. And they'll make sure you get one. We are in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Which, if you are using the Bible that's being handed out, you can find on page 448. Page 448 of the Bible being distributed. Psalm 2, page 448. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's a fitting habit. We hear your word read. Then we sit and bow our heads and together unite our prayers and ask for your Holy Spirit to take that word and use it in our hearts. It's a fitting habit because we need your word. It's a fitting habit because we need the Spirit to work through your word in us. And so again, like every Sunday, together all of us are uniting our prayers, asking for the work of your Spirit as your word is studied, preached, explained. I need your help. We all need your help. May we be changed by your word. In Christ's name, amen. Who would you say was the most unlikely participant at the first Christmas? Mary was pretty unlikely. 
This young girl from a lower class family. In another town far away from her family giving birth. Joseph was pretty unlikely. A young godly man who's with his new wife helping her give birth in an area designed for animals to a baby that's not his own. Shepherds were unlikely. Widely regarded as kind of the lowest caste of society. And yet they were the only ones that the angels came and gave a specific invitation to, the only ones who ran through the city streets to greet this new baby. I mean, even the animals around them, near their their feeding troughs been taken, they were a little unlikely. But at least from my perspective, I think the most unlikely participants were the last to arrive the wise men, sometimes called the three kings or the magi. These pagan astrologers from Asia. I mean, it's, it's a bit shocking that they're there. It might be a little bit like a Buddhist monk showing up or, or a respected gypsy fortune teller. And these magi, these wise men, had come a long distance, probably, certainly weeks, probably months, traveling, they say field and fountain, more and mountain. How do you travel over a fountain? I don't know. But they were going, it was a treacherous journey back then, following the star. And yet they came, and they bowed before baby Jesus. Who is this laying in the feeding trough, laying in the manger that would compel these pagan astrologers to lay aside their idols and their godless ways to instead worship him? Who is this child. That is what Psalm 2 is going to answer for us this morning. Psalm 2 has four distinct voices in it, each given a proportional three verses. And so we're going to look at those four voices and The first voice is in verses 1 to 3. What do we hear those voices saying? Verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It sounds like the voice of one who is oppressed, maybe enslaved. They long to be free from bonds. Who is this poor, oppressed group? But of course, if you had read verses 1 and 2, you know this is not an enslaved group. Rather, these are 
insurrectionists. These are people who look at the good, whole, just, peaceful rule of God Almighty and say, we do not want him ruling over us. They reject the good rule of God. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed king. The one who is the source of joy, they call a killjoy. The one who is the liberator, they speak of as an oppressor. The one who comes to bring life, they want to cast off. This is how the nations are. We as people are inclined to resist and reject the rule of God and take his good rule and label it something that is not good. And maybe those of you who hear this sermon, hear this description of the nations, and there's a certain angst that arises within you. Certainly would have been true for the original Israelites who heard this psalm. They'd feel the sting of the nations raging against God around them. Or you think of the time of Jesus. Acts 4 quotes this and talks about how at Jesus' death, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders all rallied together with Jew and Gentile alike to crucify this man. And today we see the same thing. The good ways of God being rejected in our day and age by the nations, by the peoples of the earth. And it can feel destabilizing Maybe you felt it when you've seen just how easily we turn against one another and bite and devour one another in the midst of a pandemic based on our different COVID views. Or maybe you felt it of late with the passage of Bill C-4, which labels a harmful myth a biblical view of sexuality, a harmful myth that should not be repeated, and if it's repeated to certain people and in a certain way, leads to imprisonment. Or maybe you think about the debates about justice with one side kind of muting or ignoring the biblical call to justice, and another side completely rewriting what the Bible says justice is, both in their own way, rejecting what God has said. 
And when we say we want our way, we know best, we reject God's ways, we are the ones who know what is good and right, we know how to write the myths. Society becomes unmoored. And now we're at the whims of just whatever the majority happens to think is good in that time. And it can be destabilizing. It can create angst. And that's where the the first voice leaves us, feeling that angst. You think of how Israel would have felt 1000 BC, a small nation surrounded by these powerful nations that were completely pagan and godless all around them. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have felt. I mean, they had been forced because of the Roman Empire to, to as, a, as a really young, newlywed couple, to go on this long journey when Mary is full-term pregnant. And here she is, this young, young mom, having to give birth without her mom around or anyone else there to help her, just this young guy. That'd be great. Around a bunch of animals. You feel like those nations raging? I feel it. And we certainly feel it today. The nations rage. I want to make just two other observations about these opening three verses. Uh, first, some amount of our angst is alleviated right from the get-go. Because there's this, this hint, right? The people's plot in vain, right? That's important to know. It's where the psalm's going. It's from the outset, you need to know. They plot in vain. Our own trying to be our own God, our own king, our own sovereign, it's in vain. But, but also look at who they want to throw off. They want to throw off, when you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that's Yahweh, they want to throw off Yahweh and his anointed. Now his anointed would be understood then to be the, the anointed king. But the word anointed is where we get the word Messiah. They're rejecting Yahweh and Yahweh's Messiah. And of course that's exactly what we see the nations do in Jesus' day. So you got Herod, after he hears the report of this king being born, who tries to have him killed by having all the babies of a certain age put to death. And again, as Acts 4 points out, even though he didn't succeed, just a couple decades later, the nations are trying to kill Jesus again. And this time they crucify him. And if you've read Psalm 2, those things shouldn't be a surprise. The nations hate baby Jesus. They want him dead. 
that's the first voice. The, the nations, the raging nations. Voice number one, verses one to three. The next voice we hear is the voice of Yahweh. We'll find out he is the heavenly father that's speaking in verses three to six. And this is what he says, verse six. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, it says, he says these words full of fury. And yet it also says he says them with a laugh, holding these nations in derision. So even though I think it is it's a strong word, I, I, there's a certain just kind of cool about God. They're, they're raging? Oh, ask for me? I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I think of it a little bit like the, the image I came up with is a chess master. I think I've, I've seen Bobby Fischer like playing like 12 different people in chess all at the same time, going from board to board to board. And so this is the little mental picture I came up with. He's on a certain board plotting his move, and his assistant comes up. It's like, Bobby, Bobby, over at, over at board number three, they've, they've moved their knight onto E6, and you're in check. And he just says, oh, well, as for me, move my rook to d6 and tell him good game. It's like, you know, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Is this really a contest? And, and then, you, then you look at those instances I talked about, right? When Jesus is born and Herod is... He's, he's, setting, he's setting himself against the Lord's anointed, and God's like, all right, wise men, yeah, don't tell Herod about this. Joseph, take, take Jesus, go up to Egypt, safe. And then, just look, I, I mentioned Acts 4 a couple times. Turn there, Acts chapter 4. I'll tell you the page number in just a moment. Half of you are going to get there before I do. Page 912, page 912. Look at verses uh, 27 and 28 of Acts 4. This is right after quoting Psalm 2. He says the Holy Spirit, quotes Psalm 2, and then verse 27, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, they're praying to God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The nations are raging, and what did they do? Oh, just what God had predestined to take place, that's all. Checkmate. Game over. You thought you were succeeding by putting him on a cross? He needed to go to that cross so he could atone for our sins, so he could take our sins, bear that wrath, and the, the thing that comes with sin, death, bear that death and overcome it. 
It was all part of God's predestined plan. The nations rage, the people's plot in vain. God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I say checkmate. I say game over. But it's not a game, is it? Yes, there's a certain cool, detached way he's saying, I scoff. I hold them in derision. But he also says he speaks to them in his wrath terrifying them in his fury. Because this rebellious heart that says, I'm going to cast off the one good king that this world needs, that heart is what has led to all the brokenness, all the pain, all the suffering that's in this world. And I know some of you have felt that so keenly and pointedly. And God looks on that and he doesn't just say checkmate, it's a game. He says, my heart is grieved. I'm full of fury. This kind of thing cannot go on. That is why I established my king. God sets his king. He appoints him. He's unconcerned about the plotting of the nations. So much higher, so much far above. Verses four to seven, sorry, four to six, the voice of the heavenly father. The next voice we hear is an interesting one because now that anointed one, that Messiah, speaks. And all he does really is quote what Yahweh said to him. So the whole thing he's speaking, but the whole time he's quoting what Yahweh told him. I'm going to tell you what the decree was, and then he quotes Yahweh. Now I want to dig into these three verses because they're actually really important as we say, who was that that the wise men came and worshipped? Who was that in that manger? This verse is really important. These three verses are really important because they not only tell us the identity of this Messiah, they also tell us his purpose. Identity and purpose. We'll see both of them here. And so let's look at identity first. And there are three really key clues to his identity. The first is that he is the anointed king that we saw in verse 2. So, this is you're tracking along. They're against Yahweh and his anointed king. And God says, I'm going to set my king, or I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then here, this voice says, hey, I'm the one who's been given the nations. The earth is my possession. I'm the one who'll be breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed king. Clue number one to identity. Clue number two, he's the begotten son of God. The begotten son of God. You see that there, of course, in verse seven. Now, there are different ways sonship can work. Someone can be an adopted son. 
Someone be, can be declared to be a son. But the word begotten means there's an organic connection. This is a filial relationship. He, he is the begotten son of the Most High God. The third clue is that this Messiah was present and conscious on the day he was begotten. Let me explain that a little bit. Let's say I said to you, my dad said to me, today, son, I gave birth to you. You'd be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. What do you mean, today, I've given birth to you? Did you hear him say that? You were a baby. You couldn't have heard that. You could say, well, well, maybe you heard a report of it. Maybe that is something your dad said on your birth. And then later on, they told you, I said that. And now you're telling us. Why would the psalmist put it in the Messiah's mouth like this, where he's the one declaring what he heard from Yahweh? Strongly, strongly implying here that, that he was present and conscious on that day. He was declared to be the begotten one. He heard it all. Today I have begotten you. It's one of those things that happens on numerous occasions in the Old Testament where God puts a little hint down in there that absolutely makes no sense on its own until Jesus comes. And then you're like, okay, I'm getting it now. The mystery becomes clear at the arrival of Jesus. Because, as the New Testament helps us understand, Jesus was the eternal Son of God who took on flesh so that he could become the the king who would usher into God's kingdom. But he was not a created being. He existed from eternity past, and yet the relationship he has from eternity past within the one person of, or the one nature or essence of God is this two distinct persons of father and son. And how do they relate? There is some sort of filial family, father, son relationship that these two persons of the Godhead have from eternity past. And so because he's existed in eternity as God, to be the begotten Son of God and know I am the one who is begotten and I've heard that decree makes sense. I'm not saying there isn't some mystery in the Trinity or that's all clarified, but we understand how Jesus, the Son of God, the true Son of God, the begotten, eternally begotten Son of God, fulfills this very word. So who is it? What is his identity? He's the anointed king, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he is eternally God. God the Son from eternity past. That's who this man is. But what is his purpose? Verse 8. 
Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He's going to come, and all the nations will be his. He will be the king of everyone. And then verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you're going to come in and have all the nations be yours and assume your rightful place on the throne, it means throwing off and crushing the nations that rage against you. And it's, it's going to be like a rod of iron and some pottery. Tell how one-sided it's going to be. Sweet little baby. Coochie, coochie, coo. Who is this cute child? A mighty warrior. Coming to conquer the nations of this earth and usher in God's good kingdom. Revelation 12, verse 5, describes it like this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. I think some people are going to be surprised, going to have a Christmas surprise when they think this cute little baby, when they learn this cute little baby is the conquering king. When Jesus started his ministry, one of the first sermons he preached, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yes, Jesus came to save. Yes, Jesus came to die for our sins on the cross. Yes, but he also came to defeat God's enemies and to usher in his kingdom. His mission, his purpose, is to establish God's kingdom, to restore Eden to this world. That is what Jesus came to do. And so it was fitting for those magi to come bearing gifts befitting of royalty. Bearing gifts that you would give to a conquering king and to bow before him and offer their gifts. The third voice, the anointed son, verses 7 to 9. And that takes us to, of course, the fourth voice. And this fourth voice we're not given the identity of. Sounds like it's just the voice of the person who wrote the psalm. Or it is the voice of the person who wrote the psalm. But I think it's more appropriate to say it's the voice of the Holy Spirit who inspired the psalm. Isn't that great? You get the raging nations, then you have the Heavenly Father, the Anointed Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's offering an invitation. 
See all, all the words that he says, the commands he gives. Kings, be wise. Be warned. Serve Yahweh. Rejoice. Kiss the sun. These are words of invitation. Now here we get a really important glimpse into God's heart. He's inviting a group of people to come and find joy, find and come escape from the wrath they deserve, and the last line, to take refuge in him and be blessed. Who is he inviting? Who is he inviting? Who is the Holy Spirit saying, come, be wise, serve, take refuge here? It's the very nations and peoples that were raging against him. Yes. In verse 4, he is declaring... My wrath can flash out and consume in a moment. I am so much stronger and I will bring my king conquering like a rod of iron crashing clay pots. Yes, I am that kind of strong God who will deal with rebels and insurrectionists in the way they must be dealt with if I'm going to bring in my restored Eden. Yes. But how does he end? With the Holy Spirit imploring, so come, come find refuge, come find joy, even in your awe and your reverence. Come pay homage here. That is God's heart. And so some of you who are here who know, like, I'm somebody who does reject the rule of God. I don't want God's rules. I don't like what he's said. I reject parts of his Bible, and therefore I reject him, or I shave at him. What is God saying to you this morning? Come, be wise. Be warned. You can find refuge in him, or be on the receiving end of his wrath, eternally. There are really only two options before us. To embrace the Son. Kiss Him like you'd kiss a signet ring, paying homage to Him, right? Or to continue in your raging against Him, saying, He's like a slave driver. I want nothing to do with Him. And this morning, He's saying to you, Come to Jesus. That's what the wise men did, isn't it? Pagan astrologers. You gotta, you gotta turn to Matthew chapter two. It's on page eight hundred and seven. Actually, we'll be on page 808 because I want to look at verses 10 and 11. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It's only on that page if you're using the Bible that was handed out. Probably you know that, but... All right, listen to what happened with the wise men. When they saw the star, 
particularly as it guided them to Bethlehem. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See what they're doing? They're full of joy, trembling joy, but full of joy. They're coming to serve him. They're bowing down, giving homage to him. They're offering him gifts befitting of a king. This is Psalm 2 fulfilled in our midst. And it's available to all of us. Who is this cute little baby? Coochie, coochie, coo. I think some of us are going to be in for a Christmas surprise. Because we think Christmas and this baby is for the good and decent people who are a lot like us. And who celebrate Christmas as it should be celebrated. And who have their lives together and buttoned up. I'm not sure we've read the Christmas story then. Certainly haven't read Psalm 2. The invitation's going out to the rebels, those with hard hearts. At the original Christmas were pagan astrologers Just let that sink in. There's none. None that are too far to be saved. None. The invitation is for anyone and everyone who realizes they need to bow before King Jesus and be... and be rescued from their sin. Of course, the rest of the scriptures play out how Jesus did that, talked about already in this sermon, how he he took the, the rebellion and sin and the penalty that deserves upon himself on the cross. He died for our sins so that God, we could be restored to our relationship with God the Father. He conquered sin and death so that our own hearts could be changed. The Holy Spirit is inviting us this morning, isn't he? It's the fourth voice. Verse 10 to 12. Holy Spirit. Of course, there was a reason I started with those unlikely magi. Because they fulfilled this psalm so perfectly, don't they? We call them kings. They probably weren't kings, but they were certainly nobility who would have been part of the raging nations coming and bowing before Jesus. Casting aside their idols. Who is this baby? Who is this little child that they have 
come to, that they would cast aside their idols and their pagan worship in order to bow down before Him. He is God's Messiah, the King that ushers in the goodness of God's kingdom and restores the kingdom of God to this earth. He is the Son of God, eternally begotten, the God-man, come to rescue. And yes, it sets us at ease that the nations that rage and all that can feel so destabilizing, God's like, checkmate, I've got that. Don't worry about it, my king is set up. The baby in the manger is him. And yet he also, at the same time, holds open his arms and his Holy Spirit pleads, come, pay homage to him, bow down and worship him. It's an old carol, somewhat forgotten. Who was he in yonder stall? It begins by asking. And the answer, tis the Lord. The King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, this psalm surprises us perhaps the little baby is a conquering king with a rod of iron ushering in your kingdom this baby this this passage surprises us perhaps this this baby is one who makes a way for all to come to Jesus and be saved to be rescued and find refuge and blessing, even those, perhaps especially those, who have raged against you. He came for the wise men. He came for the magi, for the shepherds, for Joseph and Mary, for us. And so may we kiss the sun.